Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When mental illness and the criminal justice system meet, the result is often grim and sometimes tragic. From the initial encounter with police through the courts and on into prison, the system wasn't designed for people who aren't really criminal, but are seriously mentally ill, delusional, paranoid, and often terrified. The moment of the psychiatric emergency often is immediately transformed into an encounter with police, and that doesn't have to be the case. Dr. Christine Montross is an associate professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University and author of Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration. This book is a result of years of working in jails and prisons. Oftentimes, family members tell me stories about how they are incredibly worried about a loved one who's behaving erratically or she's putting herself in danger. They're not able to access treatment, so they call 911 because they're afraid. In any other kind of health emergency, if you're in a car accident or you're having a heart attack and you call 911, we send trained clinicians, paramedics and EMTs who can administer oxygen, start an IV, stabilize a fracture, stop your bleeding, and then transport you to a medical facility. That's not how we handle mental health emergencies. We send police. And people with mental illness are 16 times more likely to be killed by police than people who are mentally well. That's the fault of the system, not necessarily police officers. They usually don't get enough training in diffusing a mental break, which a social worker might be able to do. But even when they do talk a person with mental illness down, it's no guarantee that they'll receive appropriate treatment after that. Prisons and jails have become America's de facto mental health system. The largest psychiatric institution in our country right now is the Cook County Jail. Not a psychiatric institution at all, but in fact, the institution in our country that holds the most mentally ill people. 20% of people in our jails and 15% of people in our prisons who have severe mental illnesses. So that's schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder. It does not even count people with substance abuse and post-traumatic stress. So that adds up to about 356,000 people every day in our nation's jails and prisons with severe mental illness. Montross says it didn't used to be this way. We used to treat people with mental illness, often in large mental institutions, but at least we treated them. There's no question that mentally ill people used to be in the auspices of state-run psychiatric hospitals, and the deinstitutionalization, which really began as an altruistic idea to get people out of institutions and into the community, in fact, resulted in a period of time where people didn't have the community support they needed, the funds were never allocated, and you had people who no longer had housing, food, medication, who had required a high level of care. Pretty quickly, those people started sleeping in doorways and in park benches, stealing items for subsistence and begging for food, and suddenly shifted from the auspices of our healthcare system into the criminal justice system. And really what we saw was a trans-institutionalization, that people did in fact leave the psychiatric institutions, but ended up in punitive th institutions rather than therapeutic ones. 
Montrose says we misread our own commitment to people with mental illness 40 years ago when we pulled them out of mental institutions with the intent to treat people in the community. But we never finished the job. I think we were overly optimistic about our willingness to allocate funds to our extremely vulnerable mentally ill citizens. I think that the model of community care could have worked and we see places where it is working in small degrees, but of course you have to allocate resources for programming like that for people who have significant needs. And our failure to do so was incredibly short-sighted. That left many people with mental illness to fend for themselves unprepared to deal with the world and its rules. Montrose says many of them land in jail as a result of a mental break, a transgression with no criminal intent at all. I work as an inpatient psychiatrist with severely mentally ill people, people who are hearing voices or seeing visions, who are paranoid or really trying to hurt themselves or other people. And over and over again, I would hear from my patients that they were coming in contact with police. Almost always, they were not situations of criminal intent. It was psychiatric symptomatology, people who were shouting in the Starbucks or who were charging through TSA because they had a delusional belief about a plane they needed to board. They weren't trying to commit a crime and get off scot-free. They were caught up in the legal system when instead they needed treatment. So this is the reality that we see far more often is mentally ill people who become entangled in the legal system, not people who use mental illness as a way to get off scot-free. That's much more of a Hollywood story. So prisons and jails are where these kind of rule breakers end up. And being a rule breaker is exactly what makes prison the worst possible place for them. Once mentally ill people are in a prison environment, it's a very difficult place for them to subsist. Prisons have really clear rules. There are actions and there are consequences. You're expected to follow the rules, and if you don't, there are punishments. Well, if you are mentally ill, if you're hearing voices or seeing visions, or if you're really paranoid, it's hard for you to comply with orders in the same way that you might be able to if you were mentally well. So what I found in, in going into the jails and prisons was that mentally ill people who wind up there stay for long periods of time because they accumulate punishment after punishment, infraction after infraction. They often end up in solitary confinement due to an accumulation of these infractions. And it's a damaging and destabilizing place for them to be sure. But I also found that it's damaging and destabilizing even for psychologically well people who enter into our correctional facilities. The system is designed to be dehumanizing and degrading. Still, a lot of us infer criminal intent on those in prison. They deserve it or they wouldn't be there. So we make life there as hard as we can. By nature, the adversarial relationship between correctional officers and detainees is difficult for both sides of the spectrum. You hear even correctional officers talk about how hard the job is, how upsetting it is. The suicide rate for correctional officers is higher than police or military. And we've all been in jobs that have an adversarial element in a, in a professional realm, and that's hard. So I think that it's difficult psychologically to be in an environment where there's an us versus them mentality at all times, and that's certainly true for detainees. We say we want safety and justice. We say we want justice and safe communities, but in fact, our prisons do not deliver on those goals. What they're really good at is suffering and vengeance. But in a society where 95% of our detainees return to our communities, it disserves all of us to dehumanize and degrade people and make them less well than when they entered into prison because then they come damaged back into our communities. Montrose says the worst thing she's seen in prisons with regularity is the use of solitary confinement, 
on children for as long as a year at a time. One of the misconceptions I had about prison was that people who were held in solitary confinement were a phrase that get tossed around a lot, the worst of the worst. That people who were in solitary confinement were violent offenders who had to be there for safety. What I learned, in fact, is that most people in solitary confinement are there due to an accumulation of infractions. I also learned that children are held in solitary confinement. As a neuroscientist who has a really clear understanding of the critical neurodevelopment that happens in our adolescent years, the idea of a young man, a boy, being held in a place of sensory deprivation, he doesn't have social interactions, he doesn't have interactions with adults or peers, his meals are shoved at him on a tray through the door, that was really appalling to me to think about both the present moment of the experience for a child in that realm, but then also the long lasting horrible damage that we do to the developing brain when we put kids in a circumstance like that. What's that like? Montrose says the COVID-19 pandemic might give those of us who can't imagine prison just a little taste of the psychological strain. That's simply to note the radically increased numbers of people experiencing depression and anxiety in our country due to social isolation of the pandemic. People who couldn't see their friends, couldn't go to the bedsides of loved ones who were hospitalized, couldn't attend funerals or see parents or grandparents, children or grandchildren. And the degree of depression and anxiety that emerged in people and trauma as a result of these experiences. And then to think this is intentionally what we do when we incarcerate people. We separate them from these relationships. We take away these foundations of human flourishing. And then we are surprised somehow that they're psychologically less well when they're incarcerated and then when they leave prison. Montrose says an attitude adjustment is the first step towards fixing that. We have to cure ourselves of the desire to make prisoners suffer, then change the system to match. She says the blueprint has already been made. And in Sweden and Norway and Germany, there are really different approaches where they were doing it our way. They recognized that it wasn't working and they made a shift to really focus the period of incarceration less on vengeance and more on constructive rehabilitation. And so they do a needs assessment when people first come in to say, what are the circumstances that led you to be in this position where you were incarcerated? And then we're going to use the period of corrections to really shore up and augment any of those deficiencies so that when you leave here, you don't return to prison. So if you need substance abuse treatment, mental health treatment, anger management, education, job training, those are going to be the focal elements of your sentence so that when you leave here, you leave better prepared to integrate back into your community. Their recidivism rates have dropped from 60 to 70 percent, which is where ours is, 68 percent, down to 20 percent. Their costs have gone down because people aren't coming back over and over again for lengthy sentences. But how likely is it that we put such an ambitious change in motion? Montrose says you may be surprised. I'm cautiously optimistic. I think the thing that makes me the most optimistic is that in a moment where there is almost zero bipartisan consensus on anything, there is bipartisan consensus that we need prison reform. Cory Booker and Newt Gingrich shared a stage together to talk about the need for prison reform in our country. Republicans and Democrats alike agree that our system is ineffective, it's inefficient, it's inhumane, and it's expensive. And so I think there is this shared territory in the Venn diagram of politics that 
almost exists nowhere else. And that gives me a great deal of hope that we can align and work on this problem together. I also think it's incredibly exciting that there are places that are doing it differently so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can acknowledge that our system is broken. We can look to other places that are doing it well and doing it better, and we can implement those models. We don't have to start from zero. Montross's book, Waiting for an Echo, is available now. You can find out more about Dr. Christine Montross and all of our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.org. For more behind the scenes, follow Radio Health Journal on Facebook, Instagram, and X. This segment originally aired August 2021 and was written and produced by Reed Pence. Our lead producer is Kristen Farah. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. I am Elizabeth Westfield. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. You've taken away your spouse, your loved one, sent them into war or in the most adverse area. But now with the internet, you're able to talk, but unable to do anything. Do military families get the support they need? But first, can changing your diet save endangered animals? As a conservation biologist, you're often concerned with eating too much. But it occurred to me that maybe we could flip the script a bit and think about ways that we could use our appetite in a good way. All that and more on Radio Health Journal. I'm Greg Johnson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. When you have lawmakers that create systematic policies that are really only set up to favor people with deep pockets, then you have the rise of corporate industry taking over. Who is really profiting from the growing cannabis industry? Then... It's not just somebody angry at a school board meeting, it's how maybe an entire set of school librarians in one school district are afraid of going to jail, so they're going to remove whatever books might get them in trouble. The growing movement to ban controversial books. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Thank you for joining us this week and every week as we break down the science stories you need to know. You can find all of our past segments and guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.org, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and X for daily content. And tune in next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.